0: From the Rocky Mountain Front Range, this is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks, public lands, and the outdoors. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. We have a very revealing conversation on the way today. It shows the real impact on the ground of the Trump administration's public lands policies. We're going to dive into three new land management plans from three different states And what you see when you put all these plans side by side is going to be a concerted effort to not just ignore conservation efforts, but ignore all public input from elected officials and citizens. Years of planning and negotiations and hard work on the ground by the folks who know the land the best. All of that is getting thrown out right now by the Trump administration. So Keep listening to this one, even if your eyes glaze over at terms like resource management plans, because this conversation really opened my eyes to what's going on, and I follow this stuff for a living. All right, a little housekeeping, and then we will get into the news Thanks, first of all, to everyone who came out to our live show in Santa Fe last month. That was truly a blast to be there. Our next live taping is going to be in Tucson, Arizona at the end of August. We are locking down all the final details right now. Uh, Pencil in August 29th on your calendar and we will have more details coming your way very soon. And after that, Montana, we are coming your way in late September. Okay, on to the news there is a new guy at the top of the Bureau of Land Management. His name is William Perry Pendley. And considering that BLM directors very rarely make headlines, it's worth paying attention to how and why Pendley's appointment is making waves. So Pendley used to be the longtime president of a group called the Mountain States Legal Foundation. They have been an incredibly outspoken opponent of just about everything the Bureau of Land Management does and stand for. Most notably, the foundation argues that public lands should not belong to the American people. They should instead be sold off to private parties or to states. And as recently as 2016, Pendley wrote in the National Review: quote, Founding Fathers intended all lands owned by the federal government to be sold. His Twitter handle is Sagebrush underscore rebel. And that is also one of the many book titles he has written advocating for the wholesale disposal of national public lands. And this is the guy who is now running the agency that oversees more public lands than any other agency in the entire federal government. And keep in mind, he's running this agency just by appointment. This is supposed to be a Senate confirmed position. But David Bernhardt and President Trump wouldn't even nominate him officially to be BLM director because, of course, there's a really good chance, even with the Republican controlled Senate, an extremist like Pendley would not be confirmed. So he's officially a deputy director in function now, however, he is the acting director and there is no sign of an actual nomination coming anytime soon. So here's a good sign of just how far out there Pendley is. We are now two and a half years into the Trump administration. Rank and file civil servants have, by and large, kept their heads down and their mouths shut this whole time. That's now starting to change. One unnamed BLM employee told HuffPost, quote, This is Sagebrush Rebellion 2020, adding that Pendley's appointment, quote, fits with this administration that is trying to destroy everything in the name of profits as we face serious economic and environmental catastrophe. Now, that's coming from a career civil servant. It takes a lot for them to say things like that out loud, to put their careers on the line. There was another unnamed BLM employee who was even more succinct. That person told e News, quote, he looks and sounds like a nut job so he should fit in with the rest of the politicals at DOI. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about ethics and scandals and outrages at the Interior Department, but it's in the details on the ground where things actually get done. And in the midst of all the national stories that get so much attention, there is a trend that is flying below the radar, and it has the potential to affect public lands for years or even decades after the Trump administration is gone. We're talking about resource management plans, and I know that may sound boring on the face of it, but they are arguably the most important documents that exist when it comes to America's public lands. Our guests today are going to help explain why. First off, we've got Mike Penfold. Mike is the former state director of the Bureau of Land Management in both Montana and Alaska. Mike, welcome. Thank you. We've got Mark Pearson. He is with the San Juan Citizens Alliance out of Southwest Colorado. Hi, glad to be here. And we have Tristan Henry. He is with the Oregon chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Tristan, thank you for being on the line.
1: Happy to be here, Aaron.
0: Thank you. Mike, let's start with you. Since making land management plans was literally your job, how is this process supposed to work? Well, Aaron, you're really on the right track, too. This is Some really
2: bad stuff is happening uh, below the radar. I mean, when you take a look at uh, both BLM and the National Forest Service, they have very competent people located out there on the ground in small communities. And you've got uh, range conservationists, wildlife biologists, watershed specialists, and a whole array of different uh, natural resource specialists who really do know their thing. They also have uh, important uh, uh, technical equipment like GIS and, and data banks uh, uh, and understanding of those natural resources and how they can be managed uh, sustainably. So it's that that kind of uh, uh, personnel that is supposed to develop the plans, and generally they have been doing a very good job of it. Uh, the public has a, ch- a lot of chance to have... Uh, input to see what they would like to have in the plans and there's a lot of technical uh, public involvement and those BLM and Forest Service uh, technical people put uh, uh, several options of plans that uh, uh, that will be used for the next 20 years together for the public to comment on and the public comments on them there's not agreement most of the time there's different ideas on how the land should be used but fundamentally those plans are finally developed and approved uh, out in the field. Uh, so it's it's a complex process that it, it works pretty well. Uh, it's 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 competently competently done. So that's kind of how it's supposed to work, and that's not what's happening today.
0: So it, it's a sausage making process essentially. It's it's never pretty when you see it gets made, but everyone is hopefully marginally happy, or at least not terribly unhappy when it's all said and done? Is that the, the ultimate goal?
2: Generally, a lot of that's the case. Uh, and, and, and a thing that's happening more recently is a lot of collaborative activities are going on where you bring the various people together from, from who have different points of view and work uh, intensively uh, to work out uh, options that make sense to, you know, whether you're a mineral developer or a range, uh, uh, you're a livestock operator or you're forester, timber operator, or ORV, recreationist person, uh, where you bring those people together and and they come up with uh, options uh, that really kind of make sense. And some of that's being thrown out the window now today.
0: So Mark, uh, in southwest Colorado, is what Mike described how it had worked uh, in your neck of the woods or, or what changed when the Trump administration came in?
3: Yes, thanks. Uh, um, it, the uh, it, 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 there's, We have a great uh, sort of example case here where we had a draft plan that came out in 2016 under the previous administration, and then a final plan that was a complete total 180-degree flip-flop uh, that just came out in the last month or so that uh, eliminated all of those sort of collaboratively uh, reached uh, conclusions that, that Mike referenced. And that's for um, a part of the world around the Uncompagre Plateau, which is a big high plateau in western Colorado, south of Grand Junction and west of Montrose. And uh, as with many of the landscapes in the west, the highest parts of the plateau are, are managed by the, the Forest Service, and then the lower slopes... Uh, going down into the arid um, bottomlands surrounding the plateau are managed by the BLM, and you can imagine that it's really important for uh, the life histories of big wildlife herds to be able to m- move back and forth up to the the highest parts of the plateau in the summer, and then down to the lower slopes where they where they winter. And we had a uh, we have a, a pretty uh, proactive, competent, professional BLM office, and they recognized the value of those wildlife corridors and came up with a, a really a, a futuristic and visionary approach to protect those wildlife corridors, and they proposed something they called ecological emphasis areas, but they were really protecting those really crucial wildlife corridors up and down the Compadre Plateau. And. That covered 175,000 acres in their draft plan, and it was applauded by by many uh, stakeholders. And and when the final plan was released a month or so ago, all of that had been completely obliterated from the final plan. Every single mention of uh, these ecological emphasis areas and wildlife corridors was extinguished from the plan, and and that was done with the explicit direction from the Washington office to override. The professional field experience of the of the managers that had made that made that recommendation. So that's just one really uh, specific egregious example of how this uh, proposed uh, energy dominance agenda of the Trump administration is playing out on the ground in real life.
0: So what was the time difference there between that first draft that clearly had been worked on on the ground and what we finally saw out of the out of the Trump administration? How much time had passed?
3: That was a three years, but even uh, so, 2016 was the draft. But even more interesting is that at the beginning of this year, in January, uh, the BLM frequently releases these draft plans to their the the county governments who are their sort of cooperating agencies and partners. And the draft plan that was given to the counties in January still had most of this wildlife corridor stuff in it. And then somehow, in the last few months, all that got sanitized at the direction of of, uh, you know, the Washington office uh, and the Interior Department. And, you know, they are trying to implement this energy-first, energy-dominance. Oil and gas is the highest priority everywhere in the West, and and this is the tangible outcome that we saw in this local plan in our neck of the woods.
0: Tristan, let's, let's bring you in here. You're in Oregon. Uh, did you see something similar with the management plans where you are?
1: You know, it sounds an awful lot like we're talking about the same um, the same districts. Um, the Vail District BLM uh, was charged with creating an RMP, or rather, uh, amending an RMP that was uh, submitted in 2012 um, on the basis that they uh, had, a, or on the basis that um, some critical um, inventories had been omitted. Um, and then, fast forward to to now, um, we're we're seeing uh, again, ostensibly at the direction of DOI, that uh, the preferred alternative being tabled is is falls utterly short um, as it pertains to
0: all conservation
1: issues, um, really top to bottom.
0: And were, were things looking good from your perspective as as a sportsman? Uh, a thing, so things changed, or was it just looking bad all along from, from where you were?
1: Well, um, I, I think we may be putting the cart a, a tad bit oh, before sure. the horse, but um, the the um, yeah the Southeast Oregon uh, Resource Management Plan um, had had failed to identify um, some lands of wilderness characteristics, and and a, again, without um, getting too far ahead of ourselves, that those those places are just so critical to um, to wildlife conservation, um, and, and maintaining uh, healthy, large tracts of land for, um, migrating wintering populations of animals. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're of critical importance and, and to see them omitted from a preferred alternative is frankly gut wrenching.
0: So I, I just want to clarify the difference between what Tristan is talking about, who you're talking about a, a draft resource management plan that was released this year and mark in the case of the, uh, uh, management plan. That was a, the draft was released under the Obama administration and then finalized and stuff was switched up under the Trump administration. So that, that's where we're seeing the, the difference in, in timeline that Mark was talking about that we haven't seen obviously in Oregon because it's just at the draft phase right now. So Tristan, keep going then if you could, uh, what are you doing? What's Backcountry Hunters and Anglers doing? And who are you working with in Oregon to try somehow to, to turn this thing around?
1: So there's a pretty diverse group of local stakeholders. And as, as both Mike and Mark mentioned, um, those those players are critical to, to seeing uh, this public process played out. Um, the RMP currently being discussed will guide resource management in the Vale District for li- the next 20 years. So um, it'll it'll direct grazing, OHV usage, investment in conservation initiatives that'll directly impact fish and wildlife management, and therefore um, sportsmen the, the opportunity for sportsmen and women women to access healthy wild places to do the things they love. So we're doing our best to to gather. Uh, gather people and make sure that their voices are heard and reflected to, to the BLM office to choose an alternative that that fairly represents um, the views of the people who use the landscape.
0: So Mike, as someone who helped the sausage get made at one point, and now you're on the outside seeing these plans come out where you are in, in Montana, there was a, there's a draft plan on the table for Lewiston, Montana. Uh, is what you're hearing from from Tristan and Mark here is the same thing playing out in Montana?
2: Exactly, just exactly what Mark said is happening here. And that, that uh, landscape this is the northern tier of Montana, and it goes from the Rocky Mountain uplift, to Markey Mountain Front, which is a magnificent area, and then to the eastern uh, border of North Dakota. So you've got some of the so, some of the most interesting landscapes that are full of wildlife, areas that I like to hunt. There's 200,000 acres of it that are unroaded meat wilderness characteristics, and those are the kind of areas where uh, backcountry hunters uh, like myself uh, and Tristan would, would, would want to go. And uh, so we know what happened in 2016 when the plan was first developed and the options, and the darn thing goes to Washington, D.C., and comes back immaculate, just chewed up, and totally directed towards oil and gas uh, development, including areas of cr- critical environmental concern, that were, were that were thrown out. So it's it's uh, it's it's a travesty. The other thing that that's kind of interesting is that there's been quite a bit of work in this state between Audubon Society, the oil and gas industry, livestock permittees, and trying to save sage grouse and conservation groups, trying to save uh, sage grouse uh, with the governor's office. And the first thing these guys did is throw that out, and it's just. Uh, so we had a, a program that was working quite well, saving the sage grouse, uh, protecting the rancher's interest, uh, allowing for oil and gas development in a sensible way, and and the first thing these guys did was throw that out.
0: So, so it sounds like we're seeing local plans that have been hashed out in the field, being then bigfooted by—is this career officials or political officials in D.C. or do we know?
2: Hey, let me, let me cont- uh, talk to that. I, I was assistant director for BLM and for five years, and I had 30, uh, three decades of experience in the field. And let me tell you that nobody in Washington, D.C., including the career people, are in any kind of position to be chewing up uh, land use plans where they have no real knowledge or, or foundation in what's actually out there. So this is being done by political people for political reasons. I, there's just a, there's no question in my mind about that.
0: So let's go back to Mark. Then Colorado, the, the, the plan there. Also, is, are they failing to protect lands that we know have wilderness characteristics? Is there just none of that in the, in, in the plans we're seeing now in the state?
3: That's correct. That, that, uh, again, seems to be a directive from the top. Uh, This Uncompahgre plan I described had a a few smaller areas that were proposed uh, along the Dolores River Corridor in particular, which is one of the uh, renowned uh, wild rivers in, in the western United States. And uh, the draft plan up until, you know, in January still identified some of those for protection and and the final plan says that there's really going to be zero effort to maintain any sort of the wilderness character around those. Um, you know, and we're seeing that not just with wilderness, but even with municipal water reservoirs. There's a new plan the BLM just released in the last month or so for eastern Colorado, which were all the lands... Uh, in the southern front range of Colorado, west of Colorado Springs and Pueblo and the Arkansas River Valley and and, uh, an area called South Park, which is where Highway 285, if you've ever driven southwest out of Denver, traverses this high open park, South Park, Colorado. And three of the most important municipal water supply reservoirs for the Denver metro area are located there and the local governments, which are Republicans, all elected Republicans, were very much opposed to new oil and gas development of any kind in South Park, and the the utilities are very concerned about oil and gas leasing up to the edge of their municipal water supply reservoirs that supply the drinking water for literally millions of people in Denver, Aurora, and Colorado Springs. And despite the obviousness of not putting oil and gas rigs on the shores of municipal water supply reservoirs and despite the unanimous request of of local elected officials, even Republican elected officials, to please not lease there, the BLM in this new plan has decided to lease ninety nine percent of it with standard stipulations which are, you know, very unrestrictive about when and how oil and gas development can occur. So it's it's a kind of a uniform across the board that wilderness, watersheds, water supply, wildlife, all those things are thrown under the bus in favor of maximizing energy development everywhere. And that's again, seems to be the directive from Secretary Bernhardt and, and what the Trump administration has said is going to be their overriding priority for the, for the management of our, of our public lands in the world. All right. So it's not
0: just ignoring those pesky green groups, it's really anyone with local input that's not an oil and gas company is getting getting ignored. I, I want to just run through some of what we've seen in some of the other states where there are also draft resource management plans coming out, because I think it's noteworthy we don't have someone from Alaska on this call. But in Alaska, tribes requested that uh, seven million acres of areas of critical environmental concern uh, be protected Uh those didn't get protected. They were the plan there would remove another two million acres of existing areas of critical environmental concern and open all thirteen and a half million acres of lands in that plan that have wilderness characteristics would be open to mineral extraction. Um we've got six draft resource management plans released so far this year. Of the in those six plans, 94 percent of the areas of critical environmental concern from previous plans would be rene- would be removed. And across those six plans, there are 15 million acres that have been identified as having wilderness characteristics. BLM is proposing protections for less than four thousand acres out of 15 million. That is zero point zero three Percent, Tristan. When you hear numbers like that, as as a hunter, what do you think that does across the West to the prospects of folks like you who head out into the back country uh, for food and and for sport? Well, it's really just
1: a terrible. Um, it, it it does terribly by hunters, anglers, and really anyone who derives joy from, um, spending time on, on a, on a scenic landscape and in a healthy ecology. Um, but perhaps more upsetting is just the fact that we have this opportunity to, to move forward with, with solutions that, that do offer, um, you know, best fit management practices and and outcome-based management that, that, that will better serve, um, those ecologies, hunters anglers and everyone else depend on uh and and to to let those slip through our fingers is is just frankly unacceptable
0: mike penfold uh how do you square all of this with what secretary bernhardt is trying to do getting rid of almost all the remaining staff at blm headquarters in dc to establish a new ostensible headquarters of just 27 people in Grand Junction Uh, is what, what what would that do in terms of these plans? Is this going to change anything or is this just going to centralize control under David Bernhardt?
2: Absolutely. It's what that's about. It's a hatchet job. Uh, You know, I, I was uh, in, in, uh, Washington, D.C., when Ronald Reagan was in. And one of his political appointees told me this. He said, you know, your job in BLM, uh, and I was a career guy, of course, so when you get a Democratic administration, you're supposed to keep the, the, the vehicle on the, in the middle of the, the road not going in the left ditch. When, the, when we're in, you, your job is to keep it from going into the right ditch. And um, when, you're, when you're sitting there in Washington, D.C., and the director's coming up with policies, the career people who know how this stuff works need to be there to say, hey, director, uh, this is this is what you're running into by that policy, and here's a better way to do this, or here's how to get this done. Here's a way to make it fit in with the laws that we operate by and what makes sense on the land. And you take those career people out of Washington, D.C., and you're just setting up a political um, uh, jihad in there. So that uh, that and, and that's purposeful, and I... I, I, I <laughs> They're they're doing it in order to get rid of people. Um, I saw that, that uh, Mul uh, Mul Mulvaney, who's the uh, chief of staff, set admitted that to a Republican fundraiser the other night. He said, "We're doing this to get rid of people. Yeah, they don't want career people in there. They want pe- so it's it's uh it's
0: really bad stuff." I'm going to assume that political so, who told you that back during the Reagan administration was not William Perry Pendley, who is was a political no. then and is now the acting head of the BLM, and he also seems perfectly happy with, with things like this and, and probably thinks it's not, not far enough.
2: Well, I, I worked for Jim Watt, who also came from the Mountain States Legal Foundation. Uh, I was state director while he was secretary. That was not a, that was not a happy period. But I think Penley is even worse. He started the, the Mountain States Legal Foundation. He's written books about how to get rid of public land. I mean, this guy is a, is a dyed-in-the-wool, get-rid-of-public-lands type of guy. It's very scary.
0: Mark what to you is is the worst case scenario if these plans were to stick if the BLM was to get their preferred alternatives through
3: Well these plans are are drafted with the idea they're going to last for 20 years but frequently it is longer than that so it's really a generational decision about prioritizing energy extraction over every other multiple use on on the public public lands and you know, if these plans go forward and if that uh, they follow up, BLM follows up and implements them with issuing new oil and gas leases, all those have a term of 10 years and even longer if there's resources uh, found and extracted. So it's, um, you know, certainly, you know, for decades, it's going to set the course for what our, our landscapes look like in the West and uh, what has uh, you know first dibs on, on on the resources out there, and that's going to be the oil and gas industry under these plans.
0: To all three of you, then, what are the next steps? Do all of these plans have to get challenged individually? Could they get challenged collectively? Uh, Tristan, is this something that do, do you know can BHA step in and start uh, appealing these to the courts? Uh, what happens next?
1: Well, it's really something that I, I feel like we need to refute at every level, and and that certainly starts with um, the public being involved in the public process. Um, I want I my personal uh, aim is to see as many people who use the landscape and hopefully those who who are more just absentee owners uh, involved in the process and 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 making their voice heard to to benefit those, those large and intact places. Um, going up the ladder uh, that I I really start to get out of my depth, but I, 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 certainly think that our best chance and, and the way that we're seeing these plans, um, shot down from the top down, um, that it's so important that we also exert political pressure at the highest levels of government, um, at every place in between. That's, uh, that's, probably someone else's purview.
3: Yeah, well so on the on the this Uncompagre plan I started talking about Yening. um we're at the phase of where we officially protest it and uh that doesn't mean necessarily picketing in front of the BLM's office but it's uh filing a, you know an extensive uh written complaint to the BLM saying all the ways that we think that the plan falls short of, of the laws. And uh, the BLM will have to respond to that, and undoubtedly we'll dismiss it, and at which point, you know, we and our allies will probably end up taking it to court to challenge it. Uh, we're fortunate in Colorado that we have a very sympathetic and favorable state administration our, under our governor and our Department of Natural Resources. So they've also officially protested the BLM's plan and said, hey, you didn't even talk to us. There was no, uh, you know, coordination or collaboration with us at the state of Colorado and with our wildlife agencies, and so um, that's sort of a a major misstep, we hope, in the process that will force the BLM to step back. And, you know, we're just hopeful that um, these things will get bogged down and, and drug out, and hopefully in a year and a half or two years from now somebody else will be kind of making a final decision on, on, on where BLM should go with these plans. Mike,
0: does that sound right to use this a race against the clock?
3: Both comments are right, right
2: on target. I might just emphasize that it is important right now to go through the established public process to create a standing for organizations and individuals that you are concerned about these plans, that you have comments on them and comment directly to BLM and get yourself on the record. But this is help, happening in stealth. And um, I mean, we're talking about uh, an administration that's undoing air quality. They're undoing, uh, they're un- un- undoing water quality. They're doing these plans. These guys are, you know, what does Trump know about the public lands? He has. He's probably never even seen a pair of hiking boots. I mean, roughing it is when he's off the fairway at Mar a Lago. I mean, he doesn't know anything. So what does he do? He goes to these. Uh, oligarchs, uh, these privileged guys who want to create an income stream from the public land, and so we've got to get we've got to get the public aware of what's going on, uh, and uh, so not only the technical part, but the but the uh, getting this stuff out in the open where people can actually see what's going on. People are not going to stand for the disposal of their public lands. I don't believe. But you just can't, you can't let them get away with this.
0: All right. Each of you, before we go, I want you to real quickly give all of our listeners one spot in the backcountry in your state that you think everyone needs to see before they die. And we'll go back the other way around. So starting with Mike, one backcountry spot in Montana. Yeah,
2: I would, I would, I, I, one of the really special places in Montana, there are so many of them, but the Pryor Mountains are one of my favorite places. They have such a rich amount of resources uh, that uh, it's just one of the places that people ha- ought to have a chance to see and enjoy.
0: Mark, backcountry in Colorado.
3: Well, I'd hate to sort of let the cat out of the bag very much, but it's probably the Dolores uh, River Canyon, which is oh heck yes. you know the equal of of anything in uh, in Utah on the Colorado Plateau, but on our side of the state line, and truly one of the most wonderfully remote and remarkable landscapes you'll ever you'll ever experience
0: and Tristan take us off the grid in Oregon
1: well people have to reach out to me directly for GPS coordinates but um, <laughs> the 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 place that is the most uniquely Pacific Northwestern in Oregon and and incredible public land and incredible ecology is I would say the Siskiyou's it's a a place that I I would recommend anyone go and spend some time particularly on one of our many wild and scenic rivers in that part of the the country it's uh it's hard to have a bad time
0: tristan henry is with the oregon chapter of Backcountry hunters and anglers mark pearson is the executive director of the san juan citizens alliance and mike penfold is a former blm state director in both alaska and montana thanks so much to the three of you taking the time and giving us your insight today i very much appreciate it let's wrap up with a look back at this week in western history Last time when we were in Santa Fe, we talked about New Mexico's nuclear history. The State Lands Commissioner, Stephanie Garcia Richard, reacted passionately. She made the case that New Mexico has more than paid its dues and that the legacy of nuclear weapons and testing should be left in New Mexico's past. So I think it's appropriate to follow up with a story from this week in 1956, when New Mexico led the country in renewable energy. That's when the world's first active solar-heated building opened in Albuquerque. It is called, appropriately enough, the Solar Building, and it was the offices of a local engineering firm called Bridgers and Paxton. The engineers themselves designed the system. It took them four years. They set out to prove that the sun was a viable heat source in the winter. There were three key components. There were those collector panels, there was a water storage tank, and a heat pump. The panels themselves were striking, 750 square feet in size, cutting through the building at a very dramatic 30-degree angle. Each panel had a black aluminum sheet behind glass with water-filled copper tubes behind it. The heated water would then go into a 6,000-gallon underground storage tank, waiting for dark or cool days. If the water tank got too cold, then the heat pump would kick in. It also worked in reverse in the summer, helping to keep the building cool. When the solar building opened in 1956, both Life Magazine and Popular Mechanics wrote it up. But the innovation didn't last. Oil was cheap in the 60s. Giant underground storage tanks were not. So when Bridgers and Paxton expanded the building in 1962, they added an old-fashioned boiler, and the solar system became redundant. It wasn't until the oil crisis of the 70s that the National Science Foundation stepped in, offering up a grant to upgrade that solar system— with a new heat exchanger, automated controls, and an ethylene glycol solution in the pipes instead of just water. That upgrade showed the country that solar-assisted heat pumps were a viable way to reduce America's oil dependence. Now, the solar building is still there today, but sadly, it's now unoccupied. Those striking angled solar panels have been covered up with green sheet metal. It's a mid-century modern relic, waiting for someone, perhaps, to give it a third life. And if you visit Albuquerque today, you can still find a plaque on that building noting the achievement, the world's first solar-heated commercial building completed 63 years ago this week in Western history. And that's it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. Thanks again to Mike Penfold, Tristan Henry, Mark Pearson for a fabulous conversation. Tucson. We will see you in person in a couple of weeks. Keep your eye on this feed or our Facebook page for details. I am very much looking forward to getting my EG's fix. Please, everyone, keep the feedback coming, podcast at westernpriorities.org, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or you know what? Just hit that share button right now. It is right in front of you on your screen. Send this episode to someone who needs to hear it. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of all of us at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening.